so it's uh, dependent on um, ethics for technology. Here we are. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it's uh, ethics for technology and big data in uh, humanitarian innovation. Um, so uh, we're going to start with a presentation uh, by uh, Raymond from uh, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative uh, Signal Program. Uh, it's going to talk about uh, applying humanitarian principles to the collection and use of digital data in order to identify and mitigate potential risks to the population. And I've kind of changed that. Okay. <laughs> so hopefully we'll figure out in the middle of my talk what it's actually about. Um, uh, so I'm going to do something I hate when other people do it, which is just sit here and read a pay-per-view. Um, but I'm going to basically try to go through, um, without doing verbatim, um, of the whole thing, a paper my team and I uh, just wrote for the World Humanitarian Summit um, at the request of OCHA and some folks from uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross to, to deal with one big issue. Um, and this issue um, is a point of great debate in the field of folks who are using information communication technology and uh, uh, data for humanitarian and human rights purposes. And uh, the, the big debate is, um, is there such a thing as a humanitarian technology? Okay, so you hear people saying, um, I work on humanitarian technology. We actually don't believe there are any humanitarian technologies. There's actually humanitarian application of technologies. And we've got a big problem in applying technologies in a humanitarian way, which is we don't know how the big four humanitarian principles um, that under GERD that define humanitarian action um, actually apply. What challenges do they create? What opportunities? What things do we already know how to do in applying a technology um, or a type of data set in a way that is consistent with humanitarian principles but isn't written down? And in what ways do we need to develop new doctrine? So what I'm going to go into, and then how much time do I have about? Uh, Ten minutes. Okay, perfect. Um, what I'm going to go into is, is basically running through each of the four principles, so humanity, let's say it together, humanity, <laughs> impartiality, <laughs> independence, and neutrality, okay? And, and look at current use of ICT and data and say, are we actually doing this in a way that is consistent with the big four? And uh, spoiler alert, the answer is no. <laughs> um, so basically, we're... We all generally know how we're using information communication technologies now. We use satellites, we use mapping platforms, we use cell phones for a variety of different purposes. We use big data, whatever that means, um, to develop insights about operational situations. Um, so we get a sense of that. Let's, let's define each of the principles before we go into whether or not we're doing it right. Um, Humanity, human suffering, this is the actual language of each of the principles um, as they are defined by the Red Cross. Uh, human suffering must be addressed wherever it is found. The purpose of humanitarian action is to protect life and health and ensure respect for human beings. 
Okay, got it. Everyone clear? Okay, neutrality. Humanitarian actors must not take sides in hostilities or engage in controversies of a political, racial, religious, or ideological nature. Impartiality, and often neutrality and impartiality get confused. Um, humanitarian action must be carried out on the basis of need alone. Okay, this is really important for where we're going to go here in a second. Um, giving priority to the most urgent cases of distress and making no distinctions on the basis of nationality, race, gender, religious belief, class, etc. And the last is independence. We've got to be autonomous from political, economic, military, or other objectives. Um, that any actor may hold with regard to where we're doing humanitarian work. Okay, so let's skip ahead. Um, we've got a big problem in the case of humanity. As uh, Jean and any French speakers in the room, please uh, correct me on this. Uh, P I C T E P. Yes, what she said. Um, from uh, in his fundamental principles of the Red Cross commentary. Um, talks about humanity is fundamentally about assuring respect for the individual, um, saying, do not harm, do not threaten, spare the lives, integrity, and the means of existence of others have regard for their individual personality and dignity. What we find in this paper is that fundamentally that's saying do no harm. Okay? Do no harm when you deploy a technology. We don't have a pedagogy of harm or a theory of harm about how the ways in which we're using the technology, who we're using it with, and the aims for which we're using it can create threat vectors against populations. So the question is this, can we live the principle of humanity? Can we develop humanitarian ethics around ICT and data use when we don't know what the potential harm is? How do you respect dignity when you don't know how you violate it? Um, so why is this happening? It's happening because we have an absence of ethical and technical standards um, to remote and in situ uses of technology. Where the example I use all the time, in the United States we have something called HIPAA. Does anyone here know what HIPAA is? HIPAA is when you go into a doctor's office, you say, here's how you can use my information. And understand that. We're writing a lot of HIPAA codes for how we use data. We don't have a Hippocratic oath. Okay. We really put the cart before the horse, is what we find, is that we're trying to say professional standards for protection work with ICRC. Um, how can we use or not use individual data? But we haven't identified the question of who are we loyal to, who's our primary loyalty when we use this, and then how, um, what is the expectation in that relationship Right from the practitioner of the technology to a beneficiary. And how does that work in the digital age, especially when traditional notions of consent, traditional notions of informed consent, no longer apply when you're flying 450 feet over with a satellite? Um, yeah, Pardon? So feet. Uh, I meant miles. Oh. Yeah, way to be a vaccine driver. <laughs> what do you know about satellites? Heather's satellite imagery for Human Rights Watch. Okay. Um, so um, the jet lag is kicking in. So neutrality. Um, the principle of neutrality, I will read to you, plays a critical role in the humanitarian application of information and communication during crises. Humanitarian actors must ensure that they do collect data 
uh, do not collect data, deploy data collection tools and infrastructure, release data, and engage in programs involving information and capabilities that favors one demographic group, political party, or armed actor over another. We do that all the time. Okay, I've done that. Using um, satellite imagery analysis, I've put information into the field that has given rebel groups extremely good information that they may or may not have otherwise had about how to fire an artillery piece. So the issue in analog response when we're delivering food and shelter, we have a general sense through learning of you dump a bunch of food into an economy, here are some things that can happen. What happens when you're dumping situational awareness? What happens when you're dumping um, the ability to take data and identify a population better in ways that you may not know is the producers of that data that you can do? So neutrality becomes really important here. We think we're catalysts when we use technology, especially in a conflict situation meaning that we affect and are not affected. But we're actually, in some cases, potentially mutating battle spaces. What does that mean in terms of the neutral nature of what we're doing when we now have the capability to project information that the people who may be the armed actors don't have themselves? Are we still humanitarian at that point? Um, going deeper into neutrality for a moment. Um, it's really important to not just think of these issues in terms of armed conflict. Neutrality is not just when people are shooting. Um, neutrality can occur in domestic response in the United States. Um, during Katrina, when I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, um, we had this incredibly digitally invisible population of Vietnamese migrants who worked with the casinos. And they did not want to come and engage in humanitarian aid um, because they were worried they were going to be deported. There was no shooting. There was, it's the southern United States, and we had a big neutrality issue, which is if um, now once you put data into that 10 years later, right, and we figure out, okay, we're going to harvest telecom data, and we find in that a signal that allows people who are doing their job, in this case, immigration and nationalization, um, nat naturalization to better target that population. Are we being neutral? So while we're, we're still not fully depressed, let's go into impartiality. Um, so presently, it can be argued that the application of ICTs, both for the collection of data and supporting communication by affected populations, is often not applied in a manner consistent with impartiality. Um, there's two reasons. One is you can't impartially deliver something if you don't know who needs it most. In other words, we have no theory right now, let alone a science, of telegeographic need assessment. And that means two things. One, how has an emergency affected the ability of a population to communicate or to receive information? I can't tell you, okay? We don't have a standard way of doing that. So we're, it means we're employing interventions based on only what we think we can assume that we can see. <laughs> now, 
in analog response and you're delivering food aid, you're never having a 360 view of a population. There's always an invisible element. But we focus our methods on trying to reduce that invisibility, right? That's why we engage in assessment. If we don't have an assessment for need, we run into a second problem. Then we don't know how to deliver what, where. When you don't know the need, <laughs> the what to deliver to meet the need, where to target it, you can't develop minimum standards. So in humanitarian response, we have something called sphere standards. We can criticize them. We can do a whole conference on whether a sphere cuts it in terms of how close you put the tent and how much food and da-da-da, among other critical issues. But in the absence of minimum standards, both technically and ethically, for this work, we don't know if we're filling the need and if we're filling the need properly. So thus, impartiality is almost impossible. Um, but now we get to the big Tonkin issue, which is, for me, this is the monster in the horror movie. Um, and I know because I deal with it every day. I would say we, the second critical issue is we have now entered the age of data donor dependency, which is different than, uh, and for my remote sensing colleagues here, they're going to start nodding, <laughs> either off to sleep or nodding in agreement in a second, which is, and I'm going to read this out because I think this is the most important thing we say here is, the second critical issue, data donor dependency, is also impacting the application of the principle of impartiality. Humanitarian actors now often depend on donations of hardware, software, and in some cases, the data itself or access to the data itself, such as satellite imagery, telecommunications data, to perform basic aspects of their work. These donations of data assets and bandwidth often come from private companies and governments supporting ICT-related humanitarian work, often for public relations purposes. Instead, being able to make needs-based requests for what is required, practitioners are at risk of tailoring their ICT-related work to the specific scenarios in which donors, increasingly corporations, might most likely make data, tools, and partnerships more available. What this means is you think the, the, the need area is Gaza. Facebook doesn't want to give you data on Gaza. Facebook says, I want to give you data on the cyclone of Vanuatu because that's nice and that's easy and that's happy for us. So you then, without almost even noticing it, we're not doing Gaza anymore. We've got a great project in Vanuatu. And that happens all the time. And so the issue here is that it raises a bigger specter. We are seeing data as something that is not necessarily aid. We're seeing it as advocacy. We're seeing it as communications. We're seeing it as all these wonderful things that are good for us and are positive. But fundamentally, data is becoming a basic need. In 2013, OCHA in humanitarianism and the network age, they went halfway down the football field, and I praised them for it when we launched the reports, not all the way, but they said, we now acknowledge that information and communication in disaster is a basic need equal to food, water, shelter. I would say it's even more important than that. It proceeds, and this is where we get into the big thing, I believe that we're gonna find, we're not there yet in the data, but we're gonna find that access to information and communication disaster 
actually has a proportionate relationship to the potential survivability of populations because it determines the degree to which they know where to access and how to access physical aid versus other populations. And it also affects the degree to which they can be seen by responders. And so the point is, is that if we're in a situation where we don't think what we're doing is necessarily aid, we're doing it based on whatever corporations will give us for free. Um, what is that doing to our humanitarian values? What's my time clock? Uh, we got five minutes. Okay, great. Um, so, the the to, if we're going to get back on impartiality, we need to create bright lines. It's not about saying no to these partnerships. What it's about is not being the at the whim of them. Being able to say, here's what a humanitarian data partnership looks like. You have to give us this data about these areas. You have to give it to us with this data present. And we have to be able to say no to certain things. Um, right now, it's hard to say no when there isn't a budget to support this work proportionate to the need, and there isn't the collection in many cases or access of data proportionate to the need. And then we don't know how to assess the need. So that is, as you would say, a sticky wicket. Um, moving on to independence. So basically, independence in response on the ground really relates to access and consent. Okay, so you're in a sovereign nation and you are trying to get your convoy through to deliver food, okay? And you become reliant on trying to maintain your independence from state actors when they control access and have to consent to whether you can be there. Well, now, in the digital age, we have a new challenge to independence related to access and consent, which is access and consent of data providers access and consent in some cases of governments who control assets that allow us to do our work. It can be physical infrastructure. It can be um, satellites. It can be data. It can be funding. And so increasingly, having private companies controlling consent and access means that we're dealing with a type of actor that a lot of our doctrine, which is about negotiating access with a state or a non-state actor, suddenly we're negotiating access with Twitter. How do we do that in a humanitarian way? Meanwhile, while we are really slow in dealing with this stuff, corporations are coming out with codes of conduct. The concrete is hardening around us. Um, for example, GSMA and others are saying, here's what we can do. Here's our humanitarian thing. It's not a good moment when the GSMA, I really appreciate the, the charter they put out, or when you see what they actually, the Humanitarian Connectivity Charter. They shouldn't be the ones determining humanitarianism, but they are. And what they're doing is they're determining it as doing good, not as what, what is humanitarianism really. It's defined by really a legal a legal set of doctrine for how we engage in the delivery act. It's not giving stuff away for free. But now we have corporations determining access and consent standards for data that could relate to human, urgent humanitarian needs, and we're not defining humanitarian. So 
Let's see, did I miss any of the four? That would be embarrassing. All right, so coming into the home stretch here, um, there, two minutes. Okay, great, we're fine. Um, okay, one key message. We need to begin to identify where minimum standards are required. And by minimum standards, I mean three areas. One, minimum standards of what populations need in terms of information from outside actors, information from themselves, connectivity to access that information. Um, so basically, how many cell phones do you need in a refugee camp? How much bandwidth? The second thing is we need to develop technical standards consistent with those principles for how we actually do our work. And the third is we need to be able to identify what's required to assess need. Um, and this has to happen within a, a real shift in terms of how we've done this work up until now. I will be blunt. How we've done this work since the Don Wushikidi has been catastrophic and, and has cost us significant time. We have focused on, to quote Elizabeth Bishop, the bright objects that hypnotize the mind. We've been fetishizing the technology and determining what is a humanitarian technology when the actual task is determining how do humanitarians use it consistent with their principles. So now we need to put the cart firmly behind the horse. And that begins with really challenging the political economy of how we've been able to do this work, which is through low investment, through low amounts of research, relying on volunteers and donations. In other words, I'm saying it's time to professionalize. And to professionalize, it means we have to start with the principles. Those principles will guide us to minimum standards, and that will guide us further down the road towards ethics. The end. Uh, so we're moving to the second presentation, uh, presented by uh, Stefan Voigt and uh, Josh uh, Lyons. Uh, Stefan Voigt comes from the DLR Center for Satellite uh, Crisis Information uh, in Germany, and Josh uh, Lyons from the Human Rights uh, Watch. Okay, um, thank you, Anais, and it's a great pleasure uh, for us, I think, uh, to be here today and share with you some um, considerations and uh, thoughts on, yeah, between transparency and sensitivity uh, and how we use satellite imagery, uh, very high-resolution satellite imagery and, and their respective technology for humanitarian operations and as well as human rights uh, investigations. And, yeah, Josh, you, you are from the human rights perspective uh, here. Uh, but you've been also working intensively in the humanitarian domain. And of course, we also want to acknowledge um, our co-author, Elizabeth Schaeffer, who is working with me at uh, DLR, who could not be here today. Why are we talking about satellite uh, imagery in, humanitarian, in such a humanitarian conference? Well, when preparing this, uh, we, we, we discussed that intensively, of course, and, and uh, we are convinced that it has proven to be a, an important source of information. Satellite imagery um, can help us in getting an understanding of situations uh, far away. Uh, 
see the geographic needs assessment. You mentioned that term, and the first time I heard that one, but it's, it's, it's of course in that direction. Um, and uh, of course, we also gain increasingly uh, public access to it. Of course, as, as discussed also by, by Nathaniel, um, there are certain limitations in accessing it, um, and uh, we will show that in a, in a few minutes uh, even more. But of course, there's increase, and, and the data comes more and more uh, practically available, and also from multiple sources. Whereas in the beginning, it was only the US-based uh, uh, commercial satellites that, that, and also scientific community that, that were uh, publicly available. It's, it's more Europeans, more more Korean, more more African, other other sources that are coming there, and, and this is this is really changing also um, the objectiveness and, and and also the use of, of all this. This here is an image, um, yeah, taken uh, 40 years ago, about 40 years ago, of the um, Putara Palace in Lhasa. By at that time, uh, the the um, yeah first civilian uh, satellite sensor that uh, that uh, was available, Landsat MSS. And this is an image taken 10 years before. So in '66 of the Putara Palace. But by uh, yeah, intelligent satellites, uh, Corona at that time, and they were declassified in the meantime and they made available. This was not digital. This was film, film, and they were dropped uh, from from the satellites, from the low flying satellites, and then they were processed. So there's different technology, of course, but it it, it tells us that that um, technology even at that time was pretty advanced. Um, but for the civilian use, we had only several meters of pixel spacing uh, available, a pixel size of, of that room at that time was even, was even high resolution, but, but it was much coarser, so we could resolve the yard out there maybe with, with one pixel. Um, today, uh, we have up to 30 centimeters uh, pixel spacing, so the size of that uh, computer here, um, available commercially. And so finally, we get access to, to things that have been uh, available to, to the military and to intelligence in, in East and West, uh, yeah, more than 50 years ago. But, but still, we're getting more, more satellites, uh, and, and this, is, this is an asset that, that we can use, and we can even get access in near real time. Near real time is sometimes even below an hour, below an hour after data take that we can have the, the, data, the data sets on our <coughs> computers um, and to, to, to see things. And, and uh, I also mentioned the video. Um, so uh, this, is, this is an example of um, a space, <coughs> space video taken by the um, Skybox constellation. This is, this is an um, US-based startup which was bought up by Google uh, last year. And uh, this is the type of images they, uh, it's, well, films they are taking from satellite. Um, if, if you look closely, you will see the, the tall buildings uh, kind of tilting slowly um, because the satellite is moving along its orbit. And um, of course, you, then it's, it's looking from the, more and more from the side. So this is, these are products we're going to see more and more, even from space, 90 seconds long. Of course, they can only be done when clouds are um, not there, and of course when there is uh, illumination, so it's, it's not uh, typically not during night, etc. But this is the future of, of, of how we are going to, to uh, be using uh, space assets. 
Um, and an example more related to the uh, humanitarian uh, side of things here. This is a, a refugee camp in, in, in Kenya. Um, a couple of years ago, map, mapped by Landsat, uh, a later Landsat uh, satellite that's in this, in this sequence, at 15 meters resolution. The same camp with the German, Canadian, now since four years ago, <laughs> American um, uh, Rapid Eye uh, constellation. Uh, it has been a, it has been a sequence of of, of buying, uh, um, that buying Acquisition. acquisitions. It's communal. Yeah. <laughs> and now this is rapid eye, five meter resolution, and then we can go down Iconos, which was the first commercial sub meter satellite, uh, which was launched. 10, 15 years ago at one meter, and here you see the different pixel spacings, 15 meter down to half a half a meter of the very same uh, geographic region, and that gives you an impression on, on how we've, we've progressed in, in, in seeing things here, you zoom in, uh, over the past uh, years um, and, and this with this technology. So here, this is typically 200 meters in, in width, and we're going now to, to five meter, from 50 meter to five meter <coughs> pixel spacing, to one meter pixel spacing, and to half a meter pixel spacing. And you, of course, the picture clears up, and it takes then analysts to, to draw information, of course, uh, out, of, out of this. Here's an example um, that shows the, the potential of the 30 centimeter resolution um, versus the, the uh, classical 60 centimeter resolution, uh, two satellites, quick word, and then road view. Here, uh, over Cambodia, and so so we are getting uh, to the zoom um, these days. Now this looks all fancy, but but of course there are still limitations for good and for bad. I have to say, but um, um, yeah, dispelling Hollywood myths. Myths. I mean, they are state, state of the enemy. Uh, enemies of the state. Film. I haven't seen it actually, but I, I got told about it. I'm very very science. But where you have the notion that, that people can be tracked uh, individually by video and then license plates reading and, and identifying people uh, from space, that's not the case. Um, of course, there are airborne things and airborne assets, and that's, there's, of course, uh, quite some capacity, but we're talking about um, spaceborne here, and, and there, this capacity is not, not uh, existent. Um, as it is maybe, maybe uh, indicated in such films. So typically, if we are lucky over, over uh, well-covered areas, we get one or two uh, commercial images per day at, in, at the noon time or a local, local late morning, um, because then the sunny illumination is, is, is good. Those orbits are not geared to be used in dawn or in, 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 in the mornings or the evenings or at night evening. There's no thermal imagery at high resolution uh, capacity to identify people or so at, at, at night. And looking now at the global perspective, also there's a lot of um, uh, yeah, areas that are not covered, typically with, with uh, cloud cover a lot, but also sometimes there's <coughs> limited commercial interest in imagery, and maybe they don't get covered or it's difficult to access. And we'll learn also later that also sometimes there are other commercial interests or even military interests that hinder access to commercial, typical commercial data. That's also something we have to live with or we, we, we face. And so, as Josh put it here also, in there's terra incognita uh, still over uh, many humanitarian uh, and, and human rights crisis areas uh, because we, we cannot really get access to, to imagery to the extent uh, we would want to. 
just just one additional point something that we haven't seen before which is in areas of acute crisis and humanitarian need and there is an intense um, humanitarian driven uh, tasking program for commercial satellites where they are actively trying to collect as much as they can because of the because of the, the context of, of the affected populations, not everyone is being imaged, and actually there are large portions of Syria that are not on the normal reporting list uh, in terms of active and hot conflicts that have not been observed for months, if not several years. Uh, many of the World Heritage sites that have been destroyed are outside of the normal conflict zones, and they they are essentially invisible. Um, and they have not been destroyed. So actually, e- even when there is a concerted effort at, at collecting a large volume of, of Earth observation data to, to meet the, the needs of the humanitarian uh, community, then it still has um, some hidden blind spots that, that really may not necessarily be visible um, to most actors, but later down the line, when people start to diversify their, their interests, um, then they realize, well, there's nothing really to work on. And then it's too late. You have to, when these happen, you have to then actually you know, make a conscious decision to program your own image acquisition in all that area. You can't do it retrospectively. So, Yeah, looking at the future, near future, uh, we see that a lot of um, uh, small and, uh, and uh, micro-satellite constellations are coming up these days. Um, uh, even, uh, even Launching dozens, if not hundreds, of very high-resolution or even high-resolution or high-resolution satellites um, in in the near future. So we call those constellations the swarms if they're very uh, have a lot of lot of uh, um, individuals uh, flying in that swarm. So, very high-resolution we refer to something like two or one or even below meter, one meter resolution. Whereas high-resolution typically on the order of a few meters. Uh, that's that's the nomenclature that we have adopted in Europe. Uh, in, in the past years, and so uh, with these high-resolution uh, satellites, so on the order of three, five, eight meters, we, we are going to see daily global coverage in, in the near future. Of course, wherever cloud uh, allows. Uh, I mean, we will also maybe see uh, new new trends with radar imagery uh, being used, uh, but that's tricky to to read and understand. It, it takes really, really seasoned uh, analysts to work with radar imagery, and it, they're not so intuitive to read as and, and understand and as, as optical imagery. And that brings us also to the, this, this future. Um, and, and, and Nathaniel also has mentioned this, this, this ethics of big data and, 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 and usage of big data, whatever that is, but, but still it's a combination of different data sources and, and there we will see fusion and, and, and I also want to object a bit of what you said that, that mm-hmm. you, take, you, you take imagery and, and try to read from imagery only. If you do that, you probably have a problem. You will always need to have some ground truth, as we say, or some ground information and the more you have, the better you are. Picture Geotech pictures, reports, uh, experts from the ground, or whatever. So we are, we are, we are, we are absorbing every single information. No objection to that. Okay. Just using an example, not saying sure. imagery. Yeah. Okay. Um, but we will see. We, we will see a lot of this this fusion and and of, of information, and also there, um, which will give which will give us a lot of more insight. 
but also maybe a lot of uh, potential problems or, or risks that, that unintended, with unintended consequences that we don't know of. So uh, in, in that sense, I'm, uh, I think we are really on, the, on your side there, Nathaniel, that, that we, are, we have to be cautious in what we're doing and, and not just, just uh, you know, celebrate the technology but see what, what comes with it. What are the questions now that come from from this um, uh, just said? Um, so historically, map projections and, and they, they were state secrets and, and high resolution satellite imagery or airborne imagery uh, that, that always had the notion of military spying. Uh, but this is changing for good, I have to say. And this is this is, this is really really an, an, an asset that we can we can, we can draw from. Raw imagery and they can be considered as as Physical measurements, so they are objective and neutral in that sense, and and we should we, we encourage uh, we, we 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 plead for for really having they, them publicly available by default. But um, sometimes uh, um, such data uh, collected by commercial, some of you do in use, uh, yeah, can be still withheld for commercial reasons by private companies or when they buy them up. But it's often that we observe that this uh, formal shutter control that, that can be exerted by, by uh, the nations owning the satellites or not owning the license, they are sometimes um, done in a commercial way. So not by, by declaring state of emergency, but just by, by buying up exclusively satellite data. So then not allowing the humanitarian and, and, and public players uh, um, to, to access it. Now, generating from the raw imagery, we go to the generation and dissemination of mapping or analysis products. That, of course, can be subjective, and this is an act of, of analysts doing something. And uh, this needs uh, careful validation, as I said, with ground information or even, even quality control, so we don't make errors there. There have been done tremendous errors in the past, even <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> there, there were other situations we all know of uh, that where satellite imagery was, was interpreted wrongly intentionally, but that's, that's other thing. <laughs> but generating and disseminating such uh, uh, information, products, satellite imagery, and or geospatial products still has a, often a political notion. And that's, we have to be aware of, of course, as, as, as NGOs or as, as science research centers, we try to be neutral, or we want to be neutral also in the sense uh, discussed also before. Um, but often we still have this, this um, not, whenever we, we publish something, just by timing or by the context or, or whatever, uh, where, it, it can have a political notion. We have to be aware of that. But of course, for us humanitarian actors and, and scientists and NGOs, uh, of course, this, we depend on this, this notion of or this perception of neutrality to retain access to all beneficiaries in the countries. Uh, we, that's, but that's, that can be an issue. So now, how do you deal with this operationally, and, and how we deal with such sensitive cases? And also, we hear from the technical side saying that humanitarian uh, principles should apply, have to apply, and whenever we end up, uh, try, uh, we, we should have the principle of do no harm, and of course, see what's the context, how, in what kinds are we acting, and then take an individual decision, and, and we'll even come to that saying that, that even, even organizations have to have their own uh, I mean, ethical boards or sensitivity boards to, to look at things and, and, and judge on whether something can be um, published or not. So the context within, within which we are generating information, dissipating is relevant. And what logos we put on it. It's a different uh, difference if, if there's a Human Rights Watch logo on something or uh, there is a whatever... Uh, um, 
CIA logo on or something. So that's of course a, that's different. And we also uh, can take, take certain measures by either publishing everything for free, for, not for free, but publicly and openly directly. We can temporarily restrict access or keep things for a certain while and publish them after the hot situation on the ground may has dissolved or right? well, we, we can be sure that we're not harming people uh, directly or we are not, more, not fully sure but more sure or sometimes even uh, information can be withheld completely for business or for military interests or even for those sensitivity points. And then the question is really how we, how we deal with this in, 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 in real cases. So, uh, two examples. We want to show one is a map that we generated within a European research project, which was not published yet, although it's already two and a half years old, over a, a mining site, informal mining site, partially in, 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 in Congo, where we uh, decided, because it shows, um, it, it shows gold mining activities, partial, uh, partially in artisanal, and we were fearing that there may be uh, certain groups, rebel groups, uh, interested in in uh, knowing what is going on where, and we, we thought we might put people into danger. And so in this project we had an ethical group, an ethical board, and also an, 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 a process to, to, to discuss are we publishing this, yes or no? It was a science environment, so we didn't have a pressure to publish it, and it was not published yet, although the board now has agreed it can be published at this stage. But it, it's something to reflect when working on such a thing and, and there are NGOs saying everything has to go published right away, uh, public right away, others say be careful. And, and I think we're doing good if, if, if we really take that cautiously and, and be, be a bit um, yeah, aware of what we're doing. Josh, that's, that's on you. Um, yes, there's a, a few cases that come to mind. Now, I also have some slight uh, yeah. nuanced um, uh, you know, differences of opinion might be differences of, of well, differences. Now. Um, in, in this particular case this was a nice example uh, of, of a case where well human rights watch we, we, we have 100 researchers who are normally collecting eyewitness statements and, and testimony from people on the ground in, in many uh, conflict situations and that of course exposes us and and the people we're, we're interviewing to to potential retaliation to to uh, retribution, and so we have an established set of protocols about protecting witnesses, anonymizing information, when which we would release the information, how we might aggregate it to protect witnesses, and in, and so we have we always come across information that might lead to some uh, uh, negative outcome. In this case, it was the first time when we had a clear case where the satellite imagery combined with the testimony led to a discovery of information that we desperately wanted to act upon, but it posed quite obvious and immediate issues of potential harm. In this case, we had um, what we had identified, what we believed to be the the, the secret uh, hiding location of uh, Bosco Nakunda, uh, who was then indicted by the ICC. He was a rebel commander of M23. And we didn't think this would actually happen, and we sort of stumbled upon it. And then it immediately started quite a significant internal debate and discussion about, well, we want the ICC to arrest him. We want someone to take this, go do and do a raid and capture him. But then 
well, who is who is in a position to do that? Um, well, we're not going to do that. And if we tell this agency or this government or this one, well, right now their relationship with certain regional powers backing and sympathetic to his force might <coughs> tip him off. Uh, other agencies might just um, let local uh, the local government, the military. Uh, no, and then they conduct a bombing campaign and civilians die as a consequence. And not only would we be responsible for essentially facilitating a, a military strike, but it would destroy our credibility and, and raise significant legitimate questions about our impartiality and neutrality that essentially we were giving target information to uh, a member state. Now, um, we were coming close to an idea and then... Um, events uh, eclipsed our, our debate and he actually gave himself up um, before. So now it's just a question of waiting for the, his defense team to to uh, validate uh, that we got his bunker right. But, uh, we've been talking to people. We have to wait till after the trial. And <laughs> confirm that that indeed was his secret location. But it, it was, you know, it was a very nice illustration of, of what the technology might be, uh, might allow us to do, given the right circumstances, but the important thing is that we had a set of established policies that allowed us to understand that there was a potential here for this to go wrong, and that meant we withheld the information and we didn't go public. So, you know, this is, I think, what we have to tease out is the distinction between when existing humanitarian NGOs and human rights groups and international actors who have very long, well-established protocols on protecting witnesses in vulnerable populations, when they adopt new technology, they're already in a position to, to graft those policies onto the information that would be produced from the new technology. So there's not much, I don't have a great concern about unintended harm just exploding all over the place because of UN agencies adopting the technology. Conversely, what is a real risk are when NGOs are constructed on the technology side and they are driven to find a humanitarian outlet for their tech work. And I can think of many cases, what was that, that egregious one where this, um, this young man um, came up with this uh, encryption software and they were starting to pass it out in Tehran during the, the what was it, which color revolution was it? Green. The Green Revolution. And then it turned out that it had huge vulnerabilities and in fact he may have inadvertently exposed a substantial number of activists to, to surveillance and detention. And I think that's the real, that is a much more significant thing when, when techies go out and they market their 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 wares, uh, and they need a humanitarian veneer for the adoption of it. And they want to do good. Uh, they're, you know, they have good intentions. That the problem is that that's it's the interface between the traditional and the tech-driven side, where it has to be managed well and thoroughly and consciously in order to avoid those things. But, amen. <laughs> okay. Um, no, so now the question coming from such discussions and, and, and actually are there general rules that, that handle sensitivity matters and that, that allows to handle this and as discussed and as you can see uh, at least we don't have a one size fits all solution and we are convinced that, that actually we need such uh, um, 
mechanisms and institutions to, to, to really have their own uh, mechanisms or their, their own procedures to handle such sensitivity and, and really, really and when in doubt, do no harm. That, that has to be the ultimate um, um, yeah, cradle. And of course, we see transparency. We want to we want to do things. I want to make things public, as as said before, make it public by default. Um, and even if there's a satellite imagery that's that we consider an objective measurement, it's still the context and timing that may make a publishing publishing notification political or even critical or dangerous. And um, that's why we need to be very cautious. And whatever we then put on those objective measurements should hold uh, uh, um, still true uh, when uh, challenged or, or verified and independently and independently reviewed. And always allow that and, and make that possible. So, what to conclude and what to take home? Um, we, are, we are committed that, that uh, we are convinced that the, the humanitarian community can benefit substantially from those new geospatial data sources and, and services and methods. And it's, it's a powerful tool for humanitarian uh, matters. Um, also, this notion of military and spying is, is getting weaker with every um, virtual globe or every additional satellite being available. I think that's good. And, and sometimes people are maybe a bit too paranoid about, about uh, imagery, but that's, that's changing. That's, that's positive. But every activity can still have a political notion. And we have to make sure that the benefits uh, we intend are not jeopardized. Thus, we should have these ethical and sensitivity procedures. And it's a thought that we would raise here and an idea, or also opening a discussion now, on, on whether we can think of common guidelines uh, on, on how one could, by the human community, and how best use such a thing. So, such technology, I mean, in this case, uh, satellite technology, but that, as you said, also there's general discussions in your paper on use big data or other communication ICT technology in general in the humanitarian space. And with us, this, we want to thank you for your attention, and we're interested uh, in the discussion to follow. Thank you.